Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Hi, Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Normally, you'd hear Sean's voice conducting these, The Hub Dialogues. I'm stepping in today to help Sean out with The Hub's ongoing coverage of Israel's war on Hamas. This we know. Israel is facing a wartime challenge unlike anything it has experienced in its modern history. The Israeli Defense Force is planning to invade the densely populated Gaza Strip in order, in the words of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to crush and destroy Hamas after their devastating terrorist attack on Israel earlier this month. This type of dense urban warfare where the targets are insurgents hiding behind and within civilian populations and residential buildings has proven exceedingly challenging for invading armies. One need look no further than the first battle of Fallujah in Iraq in 2004 to get a sense of what Israel could be up against. We're extremely fortunate on the Hub Dialogues today to be joined by a celebrated writer who embedded up close and personal with the 1st Marine Corps as they stormed Fallujah in 2004, facing intense close-quarter combat against thousands of armed insurgents, all inside a large Middle Eastern city. His name, my guest, is Robert D. Kaplan, and he'll share his searing experiences of the siege of Fallujah and the lessons it could hold for Israel as its military prepares for a ground assault on Gaza. He'll also draw on his impressive scholarship of international history and international relations to provide some thinking on the risks of the current war escalating region-wide. Robert D. Kaplan, we know, is the internationally acclaimed author of over a dozen books on international affairs and history, including the classic texts Balkan Ghosts and The Coming Anarchy. His latest work of nonfiction is The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy from the Mediterranean to China. Robert Kaplan, welcome to the Hub Dialogues. It's a pleasure to be here. So much to talk with you about. I've always enjoyed um, having the opportunity to to host you as a speaker here in Canada to read your big books, and we're going to get into some of these over the course of our conversation today. But I want to start, Robert, with something quite remarkable that you did as a reporter for the Atlantic magazine. In 2004, you uh, embedded yourself with the 1st Marine Division as it conducted its uh, assault on the Iraqi city of Fallujah, uh, a major set piece of the U.S. story 
in Iraq. And important for us today to try to understand, Robert, what may be in store for the IDF and the Israeli military as they contemplate a ground invasion of Gaza and the defenestration of Hamas in the densely populated environment of Gaza City. So let's start there. Give us some background first on your experience in Iraq, why you admitted yourself with the 1st Marine Division. Let's open that up for our audience. Yes, uh, this was April 2004, and I was embedded with the 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines of the 1st Marine Division. It's called 3-5. And 3-5 was doing what was then called stability operations in Al-Anbar province. Then a number of U.S. contractors were gruesomely murdered in the small city of Fallujah. And the decision was taken, it was a terrible decision in hindsight, by the way, to invest the city, to take over the city through uh, an armed attack. It would have been much better off had they just encircled and closed the city off. But that all came later in books and everything. And since I was the only reporter embedded with three, you know, with one five, the first battalion of the fifth Marines and a battalion, by the way, a U.S. Marine battalion is about 800, 900, uh, 900 men, of which about 600 or 500 are combat troops. The rest are support in, in one sense or another. Another thing, Fallujah. This was the first battle of Fallujah. There would be a second battle the following November. Um, so this is first Fallujah, as it's been called. And keep in mind that Fallujah at the time was far less densely populated than Gaza is now. It had no underground tunnels or anything like that. You didn't get the feeling you were in a really intense urban environment. It was more like a suburban environment with with, with ratty buildings and a lot of dust, um, but nothing like apartment houses right next to each other, which you have in Gaza City and places like that. And as I said, no tunnels or anything like that. And the Marines were fighting, um, you know, Iraqi insurgents at the time. And even though on paper, First Fallujah was far less daunting than what the Israelis face now, I can tell you as a journalist, it was absolute hell. Um, I've never been so terrified in all my life. Anyone who tells you they like covering wars or they get a rush out of it is lying. Everyone is terrified. They're just doing their job, you know, writing in, the, in their reporter's notebook to bury their fear. Um, in other words, maybe, you know, photographers are the real brave people. They get right in your face, kind of. And there aren't that many war photographers. There are a lot of news photographers, but very few authentic combat war photographers. And this was absolute hell for a number of reasons. The Marines were very uh, super disciplined, holding their fire, waiting for a good shot, and yet fire was coming at them from three directions, sometimes from four, and it was unclear who was firing because the, the adversary um, you know, knew the town much better than the Marines did. 
So there was no getting away from occasionally hitting a civilian, even though they were targeting only young men with guns. Um, I was there for four days, four days of urban combat, which seemed like a year. Uh, um, you know, you know, you you eat when you can, you sleep when you can on a hard floor, a hard concrete floor without changing your clothes. You um you eat cold, you know, rations. Uh, it, it, um, you're always thirsty. Uh, you're always terrified. It it there's no let up. It doesn't stop. It goes twenty four hours, so to speak, and um, so. To extrapolate from that experience and to consider what the Israelis will be facing if, in fact, they go through with what they have stated that they intend to, uh, you know, to attack the northern half of the Gaza Strip, including Gaza City. I don't see how it could be done, even with the vast exodus of civilians. I don't see how it can be done without killing noncombatants. And also because not everyone will leave, keep in mind. And I don't see how they can find, um, how they'll be able to find hostages in, in the tunnel network, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Marines had some air cover, not as much as the Israelis will have. The Israelis will have a lot more air cover and they'll be very targeted. You know, also technology has developed dramatically since 2004. You know, we're 19 years away, 19 and a half years removed. And in that time, war technology, more precise, targeted, precision guided technology has advanced many fold. You know, in that sense, Fallujah was ancient, as strange as it may seem now. But I, I, I see this as just absolute hell magnified by many times based on what I experienced in, um, in, in Fallujah, because um, you're dealing with hardened, as we know, well-trained and disciplined adversaries. This can't be anything but a mess, unless, of course, the Israelis have something else in store, which they might have, where it's not going to be an all-out, just, um, you know, Russian-style invasions invasion. Yeah. Robert, give us some vignettes, because, again, you were with these troops in Fallujah for four days. It was powerful reporting. We'll include links in the show notes to your original articles in The Atlantic, where there are a couple of particular moments of just, you know, peril, heroism. I want to try to help our audience, because it's just it's so unimaginable to try to make this reality of dense urban warfare come alive to try to help us understand at a personal individual level what is this like um yeah there were constant it's not a matter of heroism it's a matter of men in this case it was all men um doing their jobs just doing their jobs um uh and you know when casualties started to mount among the marines these were not just numbers and names, but people the Marines knew intimately. Because remember, a battalion is not like a, a division. You know, it's not impersonal. A, a battalion's just big enough without getting too big so that everybody knew each other well, kind of. And I had gotten to know them a bit, quite a bit, because I had been with them a month before Fallujah. 
you know, keep this was my fifth week of embedding um, uh, with them. And when people said, oh, so and so was just killed, so and so just took a hit, uh, you know, so and so the Marine said the first thing the commander would say, fill that spot. You know, there was no like emotional register. All that would come later, of course, and double time, come back double time later. But in the moment, it was all professionalism. We need to find someone else at that roadblock if someone has taken a hit. You know, it was uh, the extraordinary thing about it was the cool, detached professionalism in the face of the fact that, um, you know, even those alive were not all going to come back alive. You know, I I remember the last shower before they went in, they knew they were going to go in and everyone took a shower. And, you know, and they said, well, this is the last shower a lot of us will ever have. It's it was done very coldly, very professionally. It's something civilians cannot imagine. They can only experience or, you know, veterans can imagine it, you know, veterans of wars. And Robert, when there were casualties and you say an ethos of professionalism prevailed here, was that always the case? Was there at times just raw anger? Um, Does professionalism risk giving way to moments of retribution and vengeance in the face of, again, just an, an inconceivably challenging situation, to put it mildly? Well, obviously that happened, but I did not experience it. You know, I I never saw or heard anything like that. I heard calls for vengeance, but not by Marines in Iraq, in war zones, by special forces based in in South America, wishing they were in Iraq rather than posted to South America. But actually in the war zone, as I experienced it for only four days, mind you, of, you know, of intense urban combat or suburban combat, it was all professional. I never saw anyone lose it. Hmm. Okay, let's turn to the the situation that Israel faces right now. Um, you've you've intimated to us that you think, in a sense, there is an aspect of this that could quite simply be mission impossible. That the stated objectives, at least as articulated to date by Benjamin Netanyahu, of the complete destruction of Hamas, the removal of its capabilities, its threat for a generation or more, to paraphrase the Israeli prime minister. It sounds like what you're saying, Robert, is that those are, are at this moment lofty words and that the application of that to the battle space is something else entirely. So if you if you were advising the Israeli government right now, and you understand, as few people do, the challenge that Israel faces, the restoration of credible deterrence in the face of arguably the greatest loss of its of national security since the founding of the state of Israel, how do you square the circle? What's your advice to them? Well, the idea is to find the sweet spot between the restoration of deterrence an all-out Stalingrad-style warfare. I don't use the word Stalingrad and 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 Russia with you know, but you know lightly because you know as we've seen in Ukraine, the Russian style of war is without any subtlety. 
You know what I mean? Without any subtlety, it's just go in and kill as many as you can. Uh, and um, including your own men, if they turn back, you know, is what happened in Stalingrad. Um, there has to be a sweet spot between that and between the restoration of deterrence. And there very well might be. It may be called an all-out invasion, but that doesn't mean it will be prosecuted that way. It may mean, you know, a quite a number of, of, uh, of units going out to, you know, for specific objectives rather than just taking a whole city, having a center, a center point that they can secure and going out on targeted strikes for a certain amount of time with air cover. Now, that will still, despite the exodus, the civilian exodus, lead to civilian casualties and other, and other extreme messiness. But it is different from that, you know, than what I described earlier, where you just go in and just shoot and take a whole city, so to speak. Remember, they are looking for, for, they are looking, I wouldn't say for a certain number of people, but, but for a class of individuals, you know, in, in the Hamas upper echelons, you know, what, you know, they're fighters. And we, 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 and for instance, up until this attack a week ago, Saturday, um, Israeli intelligence was extremely formidable. I think what probably happened with the attack was it wasn't that intelligence was bad. It was that the assumptions were lazy and smug, which is a different, which is a different thing. Let's pull back from the immediate context of what might happen on the ground in Gaza City in the days and weeks come to the regional context. We're starting to see what looks like the pieces falling together for potentially a larger regional conflict to be triggered by a ground invasion or a substantial escalation of civilian casualties in Gaza. How do you read this, Robert? You've looked at so many conflicts over the years are you seeing dynamics and patterns here that that worry you? Well, on the one hand, the very intimate bestiality of the attacks on the kibbutzim and other places could change Israeli calculus regarding Iran. You know, even if the Iranians were not involved in that attack for years and decades, they have been providing Hamas with logistics, you know, uh, training, money, etc., trying to bring Hamas, a Sunni organization, up to the level of Hezbollah, a Shia organization in Lebanon, where the Iranians have had relations and, in fact, formed going back into the 1980s, whereas Hamas didn't take power in Gaza till 2007, I think. Even if the Iranians were not specifically involved in this, I think the calculus might change for the long run. That who knows, maybe if the Iranians did have a nuclear bomb, maybe they would actually use it against us. You know, all assumptions are off. But that's not for today. That's not for an expansion of the war today. That's for some months down the road, because the fact is the Israelis have all they can handle with Gaza now and, in fact, are going to use the two U.S. aircraft carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean, one on station, one arriving in a few days. They're going to use that as deterrence, I think, for Hezbollah. 
because the Israelis, you know, the Israelis struck uh, two Syrian airfields the other day. I think all that is a statement to Syria Hezbollah saying, don't, you know, we're on your game. Don't get smart or anything. We can take you down. I think the Israelis will seek to limit this to Gaza for the time being. And though they may have long range changed assumptions for both southern Lebanon and Iran proper, uh, those assumptions won't be acted out soon, I don't think. Um, I don't see the, the Iranians trying to instigate a major conflict now um, because the, you know, they don't want the Israelis to get from the Americans bunker busting bombs, uh, you know, Casey, Casey air to air refueling, all that would be necessary for an easier Israeli strike on Iranian nuclear facilities. So while there's been a lot in the paper about the spread of, you know, this into a major regional war, I'm not seeing it just yet. Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Talk to us a bit more about Hezbollah. So there has been some rocketing into Israel. It looks like maybe attempts to kind of fix some Israeli positions in place. Is there a concern here that Hezbollah could feel compelled by Israeli ground incursion into Gaza to open up a second front to kind of relieve their their allies Hamas from you know the full effects of the uh, the IDF land sea and air and can that strategy Robert be calibrated can Hezbollah kind of get what it wants without triggering the war that possibly as you say Iran doesn't want yeah, yes, I think it can. I think what Hezbollah wants to do is tie down the Israeli troops in northern Israel to keep them there, you know, not to see any redeployments from northern Israel to Gaza. And to keep them there, they have to keep shooting, you know, in a desultory but regular manner. You know, there's a big difference between reading about exchanges of fire on Israel's northern border every day and a full-scale opening of a second front in the north. Um, but as you indicate earlier, if this becomes an all-out urban assault on Gaza, you know, like Fallu first Fallujah on multiple steroids, so to speak, Hezbollah might feel compelled to open up a second front. But I don't believe they would do that without Iranian approval, because Hezbollah's ties with Iran, remember, are much more organic 
than Hamas's ties with Iran. Um, uh, remember, it's also geographical. You know, the, you know, between Hamas and Iran are, are countries. You know, you know, Israel, Jordan, etc. But between Hezbollah and Iran are failed states. Syria and Iraq, where, um, you know, where Iran has been able able to operate relatively, you know, with relative ease. So the ties, the links between Hezbollah and Iran are far more intimate than between Hamas and, uh, and Iran. And that's why I, whereas Hamas could conceivably make these strikes without specific Iranian approval, I don't think Hezbollah can open up a second front without that. What do you see the Gulf states uh, doing? Up to this point, there was this remarkable rapprochement with Israel. It looked on the verge of culminating with some kind of normalization of relations between Riyadh and Jerusalem. That now all off the table. Lots of conjecture, in fact, that this terrorist attack, um, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, was in fact perpetrated to derail the Saudi-Israeli Rapprochement. Is any of this salvageable? Yeah, um, it you know it's harder and harder to be a dictator these days. Uh, I don't mean that as a joke because dictators have to deal with social media, all you know, a street, an Islamic street. You can be the most brutal dictator, but you don't want to anger a lot. You know, a lot of young men. You know, a lot of young, uh, young men in the street, and you know, in any country. So I think my sense is that the uh, the Saudi-Israeli movement towards relations and the Abraham Accords will go into cold storage for the moment, but are not by any means dead because Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Zayed in the United Arab Emirates, their idea for a peace with Israel is not based on emotion. It's not based on any short-term strategy of let's be not be friendly and live in peace with the Jews. No, none of that. It was based on cold Machiavellian middle and long-term logic that in the face of an Iran, they need Israel's high-tech advice. They need Israel's um, strategic benefit, all of that. And so this, they've got to put this on the side for now, because even though they're dictators, they have to worry about their street, so to speak. Um, so they'll be difficult. They'll be truculent. They'll put this in a deep freeze. They'll actually be thinking, how could Netanyahu betray us by letting his guard down like this? You know, the Gulf rulers are um they're real machiavellians they don't know they probably don't know who to be more angry with first netanyahu or hamas because they have no use for the palestinian leadership and and they would much rather have so, you know a more moderate leftist israeli leader than netanyahu but they have to deal with what they have to deal with so I think they're going to put the, you know, the movement towards diplomatic relations with Israel in, in storage for, for the time being. But who knows what three, four, six months down the road this will look like. Robert, the Biden administration, let's see what your view is, either fairly or not, has come under criticism for its foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran and in the region. There are calls to return Iran to 
the more kind of strict sanction regime that was enforced under the Trump administration. Iran has been allowed over the last uh, year or so to significantly increase its oil exports. There was this hostage for money deal now frozen in Qatar, $6 billion for the release of uh, American citizens in Iranian prisons. How do you rate the Biden administration's kind of performance? To what extent does their policy vis-a-vis the Middle East require a reset? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't like to criticize too much hostage exchanges because you're dealing with real individuals, real families. And once you get them back, they're off the table as an issue. And that actually frees you up to take more aggressive action to that state towards that state. So while there's nothing to cheer about with the with the hostage exchange in Iran, I don't want to come down heavy on the Biden administration for that in particular. I think, you know, their policy had been to try to get Iran back into compliance to the nuclear deal which was a reasonable policy. The problem is we're beyond that now. And also the Biden administration is now in re-election mode. Um, And so, and elections are all about emotions. See, that's the thing with democracies, both in Israel and in the US. It's driven by emotions, not cold analysis, because that's one of the things that come along with democracy, essentially. So I think the Biden administration is going to take a much more harder approach to Iran, you know, which may mean sending Israel bunker buster bombs, uh, air to air refueling planes, uh, which would, as I said earlier, help enable a presumed Israeli strike on Iran. Because most of the hostages have been gotten back. I mean, the hostages that were in Iran and not the Israelis in in Gaza. I see a much more harder line towards Iran from the Biden administration. I also see a more conciliatory attitude towards Middle East dictators, namely Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed, and Abdel al-Fatah el-Sisi in Egypt, because suddenly they need these people. Suddenly, you know, because they don't know what's coming down the road. They need al-Sisi to let civilians in from Gaza. Um, They need uh, Mohammed bin Salman not to completely disrail this Biden initiative of uh, Israeli-Saudi-American peace, you know, security arrangement. Suddenly, it's not just a matter of why don't these people ever hold elections. It's a matter of real hardcore national interest in a crisis situation. How do you think Russia and China are looking at the events of the last uh, week and a half? Does Russia now have a much freer hand in Ukraine? And how do you think China's possible calculus about Taiwan and the reunification of Taiwan with the Chinese mainland may have changed over the preceding days? Well, this is uh, the Hamas attack and the presumed Israeli response is good news for Vladimir Putin. Um, And the reason is it's something so basic, nobody actually mentions it. It's that it's taken Ukraine off the news. 
You know, there are less eyeballs for Ukraine. And when there are less eyeballs, when it's suddenly a page two story rather than a page one story, there's less sympathy, there's less pressure to supply them with weapons. It's across the board. Weapons supply, sympathy, diplomatic aid all flow from media attention. You know, that's the world we live in. And what this has done is it's taken media attention away from Ukraine. And so this is good news for Putin. You know, just that alone is a big boost. Uh, China, look, China has relations with Israel. I believe you could check it. Even It even administers one or two of the ports in Israel, in Haifa and Ashkelon. This is something the Chinese do all over the world. They administer ports. So China has no particular animus towards Israel at all. But nevertheless, this attack, the presumed war in Gaza, um, is will also it's good for China because it takes U.S. attention away from the, from East Asia and Taiwan. Now that doesn't mean it um, China is going to use this moment to attack Taiwan. It just means that America is distracted once more in the Middle East, which is which as turned from the younger Bush administration is good news for China. I want to wrap our interview with you. We're spending a little bit of time reflecting back on your big uh, bestseller from 1994, The Coming Anarchy. Your thesis there, needless to say, seems rather prophetic when we look at the events of the last few years, even if we look back through the decades uh, preceding the war on terror and the terrorist attacks of, uh, of 9-11. In other words, uh, a thesis that you posited that, you know, struggles would no longer be neatly ideological and categorized in the ways that we understood in the Cold War, but increasingly cultural and historical and that disorder and civil strife would become kind of bywords for international relations and global conflict. Robert, people have really, you know, struggled with your thesis. They, there have been various kind of, you know, counter arguments and attacks on it. It seems like, and I say this, and I'm sure you feel this way too, with no sense of pride of authorship, you kind of got it right. And what did you see then? And how have you seen it play out now? The thesis of the coming anarchy. All right. Just a little background. The coming anarchy appeared, as you said, in 1994, when elites at Davos and all over the world were proclaiming globalization final peace, you know, perpetual Kantian peace, all of that. Yes, there was a war in the Balkans and we had a genocide in Rwanda, but the bigger picture was the spread of democracy, the spread of middle classes, America's unipolar moment, victory in the Cold War. And I was having none of it um, because of what I saw in places that were not in the headlines, but I felt were part of the human family meaning West Africa and Turkey, where I visited slums in both countries and compared the two and, and saw that, um, you know, resource scarcity, uh, shortages of water, increasing loss of soil fertility, not overpopulation, but just the intensive increase in the numbers of young unemployed men in, in various places. We're going to chain react 
with already existing political differences. They didn't cause them. They were a background noise to them. And that's really what the coming anarchy was about. It was this reaction to Cold War, post-Cold War euphoria and to the connection between what, what I called resource scarcity and environmental changes, which are now all get bundled under the name of climate change. And seeing how climate change and already existent ethnic and sectarian and regional divides would kind of, you know, in, instigate each other, you know, would aggravate each other. So in that sense, the piece was right. Keep in mind that no nothing written can tell you what's going to happen next week or next month. You know, that has to do with the Shakespearean dynamics of individuals. Um, and nothing written can tell you what's going to happen in 50 years, because that's sheer speculation. It doesn't take into account technology, etc. But it can say something interesting about the next 15 or 20 years. That's about the best you can do, something relevant for the next 15 or 20 years. And that's why I just had a, a a big piece in the New Statesman, you know, talking about the coup in Niger uh, a little while back and talking about how Sahelian Africa is central to the human race because of all these issues. We're all part of one human family. One of the key poll quotes of uh, the coming anarchy was the insight, this again, 1994, that Islam is a religion ideally suited for urbanizing for the urbanizing poor who were willing to fight in some ways it seems like you understood what gaza could or might become before gaza existed um you you could look at it this way but you know what i was you know my point was that culture religion these things cannot be washed away by a western rationality you know or by a cold analysis the ultimate realization of realism is the fact that people are not always motivated by rational concerns. You know, people are people, they're emotional kind of speak and therefore all this religion urbanization, all has to be taken into account. One final comment from uh, an article that you published in The National Interest where you revisited the book in 2018. You wrote, my vision then and now of vast geopolitical disruption is not ultimately pessimistic, but merely historical. So if that, Robert, is the moment we live in, a moment of vast geopolitical disruption, what is the strategy that we should pursue to try to blunt its most pernicious and deleterious effects? And I think of things like, you know, the discussion which has been re reawakened around the last week's horrible events in the Middle East, you know, restarting a two-state solution, restarting a conversation towards some kind of reconciliation of Palestinians and Jews. But then I listen to you, Robert, and, you know, it, it seems like we are in a moment of emotion, not reason, not rationality. So how do all these constructs that we've created, this whole kind of post-World War II architecture, is any of this of value or use? Do we need it, a new architecture? 
we, you know, um, I can't forget who is the philosopher who said, he, you know, he's always impressed with mankind's ability to just muddle through. In other words, at times of high emotion, policy should not be driven by emotion. It should be driven by analysis. And what I worry about is that the America and the Israelis are being driven by emotion now. Um, um, because something deeply emotional has occurred does not mean when you have the responsive, the bureaucratic responsibility of a head of state or near the head of state does not mean that you should act emotional as well. There's a lot to be said for cold, middle of the road, thinking through things and not getting carried away. And just briefly on that point of it, Two-state solution, would you see that as that kind of, again, conventional, but possibly important plotting kind of dialogue around a solution, which today, frankly, seems more distant than in any time that that conversation has occurred? Well, there are two things operative in the two-state solution, one for it, one against it. The one for it is this is going to be incredibly tiring and taxing and bloody for the Israelis. And the end result, because there will be elections down the road, is that they may say, you know, to heck with it. We can't manage this anymore. We have to give them their own state. That's the positive outcome, you see. But the other outcome, the other electoral outcome, because this all comes back to Israeli politics, mind you. Uh, the other outcome is, look, the Gaza Strip was veritably independent for almost two decades. It wasn't like we were de denying them independence. They ruled themselves. We uprooted kibbutzim. We left lock, stock, and barrel with not one Israeli in Gaza. They were an independent country. And what did they do with it? And that logic applied to the West Bank would say, if we give it away within two or three years, an Islamic radical group will take power there because Fatah seems empty. It seems corrupt, you know, non-dynamic, non-efficient. So there's both a positive and a negative regarding the two-state solution. And we'll have to see which one plays out going ahead. And that, in turn, will depend upon what happens on the ground in Gaza. Final question, Robert, what will you be looking for in the days and weeks to come as flags, as uh, signals about where this conflict is going, and particularly whether it's at risk of escalating beyond Gaza to ensnare the region in a broader war? I'll be looking for how methodical the Israelis operate, whether it's targeted, disciplined, not all out, or whether it is all out. Because they can, you know, to say that you're going to destroy Hamas and you're massing troops does not necessarily mean the government is going for an all out, as I said earlier, a Russian style invasion. You know, the government may be playing with some disinformation too, you know, deliberately. Robert, I want to thank you for coming on the Hub Dialogues today. Your analysis and insights so greatly appreciated by the Hub community. I want to urge listeners to check out Robert's latest book, The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy, From the Mediterranean to China. Thank you again, Robert, for coming on the program. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.